0: Welcome to the SCBWI Podcast Conversations, a series of long form discussions with some of the most influential and interesting people working in children's books. My name is Theo Baker, and we have a real treat today with Mahogany Brown, a poet, educator, and organizer whose incredible breadth of work cannot possibly fit into this brief introduction. She's done it all from her novels Chlorine Sky and Vinyl Moon to her picture books like Black Girl Magic and Woke Baby to founding the media literacy initiative, Just Media. Not enough? Mahogany is also the first ever poet in residence at the Lincoln Center in New York. Yes, that Lincoln Center. I spoke with Mahogany in February of 2022, and we discussed poetry, her novels in verse and semi-verse, and the universe of books. Please enjoy. In Vinyl Moon, Angel when she first meets Mrs. G, Mrs. G's like, here's all these things we can do in our homeroom. Mm -hmm. And it's this huge list of like all these different ways to get involved, right? And Angel's like not in a place to be like, oh yeah, I'm ready for this. And I'm looking over like your career and you've done like almost all the things Mrs. G is sort of saying (laughs) she can do. I was just wondering like, how did you kind of break through to get so involved in so many different things, like what was the the thing that propelled you out of just that inertia?
1: Thank you for that question. I think um, because my interests are so varied. Uh, growing up, my mother, you know, she was <laughs> she was a champion of us being out of the house. It's like, no, no, go outside. So it was softball, it was cheerleading. Um, it was theater. It was then drill team, uh, I tried track, I did everything. And by the time I became an adult with this passion, uh, informed and inspired by poetry, by stories, by writing, I just had to figure out a way of, of fueling that passion with all the things that really interested me. And I think that has been truly the, the, the barometer for how I moved through the poetry world. I'm not keen on Only one genre, only one stage, only one way to be, uh, not when I grew up the way that I did, um, I had to find you know my way towards the light and while poetry is very much a part of you know the bedrock of who I am, it is informed by so many various things and so many different joys. so I wanted that to show I wanted that to show up in this text, and writing the story, um you know, Mrs. G is. I was a teaching facilitator in the Department of Education for schools here in New York City. And that's the one way that I got through to the majority of my, my young people was proving to them that poetry was cool. It's as cool as basketball. I promise. Look at this. Right. So showing them uh, the ways in which this art can live in different spaces, uh, that that was key for me. So I wanted to I think I wanted to, to breathe life into that to that knowing on the page.
0: Could you just tell us a little bit about where you come from?
1: I'm from California, from Oakland, California. I moved to New York, moved to Brooklyn, 22 years ago.
0: Growing up in Oakland, tell me a bit about what you were like as a as a child. How you came into literature and poetry.
1: I came into literature uh, through uh, being the youngest. By youngest, I mean my brother is seven years older, my sister is five years older, and that that's my mom's. You know, three, and then my my little brother he was ten years after me. So, very very much feeling like you know I was trying to keep up with the big kids, and when you couldn't because there's, you can't go everywhere, you know I'd have to sit on the porch and wait. Books became my you know my waiting guide, and when I ran out of books, I couldn't take them from the library anymore because they got hip to that. I couldn't check out anymore because I didn't pay the tab. Uh, then it was me finding harlequin romance novels that my grandmother had a full credenza of i was like oh no wonder she's always reading these are
0: fabulous
1: (laughs) fast forward i still love sports you know i I love to play sports and if i could be um, you know pick up a basketball game here or softball there i would do it any anything to stay to stay active i think at one point that that's just sort of was but when i could not. Be active because I had to sit down or stay home or be seen here. You know that's how that's how the elders used to take care of it. Like sit on the porch, can't leave the yard. Then it was the books that gave me solace.
0: Besides the the romances, what were you what were you connecting with? And I'd like uh, to hear about the romances too, because that.
1: <laughs> well, you, you can read about the romances another day. That's a whole thing <laughs> that I was able to, to to like just unpack for the well-read black girl anthology. Um, but the books that really were like my guide. Judy Bloom, Beverly Clearly, Babysitter's Club, Christopher Pike and the Mysteries. Oh, I thought those were so good. And then I ran through them. You know, there's only so many young adult middle grade books back then. Um, mm-hmm. and I found Tony Morrison. And mm-hmm. in finding Tony Morrison's Bluest Eye, I found Sapphire's Push and from Finding Sapphire's Push, I fell into a whole nother world, Bernice McFadden's Sugar and Veronica Chambers' Mama's Girl. Uh, and that was the, the beginning of me seeing like, oh, I can tell my story, right? Mm-hmm. So it went from Babysitter's Club, Judy Bloom, Beverly Clearly, which I, you know, love, love, love. Uh, Sweet Valley High, forever, mm-hmm. love them. But I didn't see myself. And it was when I opened up Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye that i recognized not only myself but my family my cousins my sisters and that and that was really that was it
0: that sounds like a, an incredible kind of whiplash experience of going from right like judy bloom to tony morrison mm-hmm. what was that like to start seeing things that uh, better represented for you
1: it was like someone turning on all the lights it was like mm-hmm. someone Inviting me into the house rather than just to the neighborhood, it was surreal. Um, and even if I'm honest, I was really upset with like the books, right? Because not only did I see myself, but I saw the pain uh, of carrying the weight of colorism. I saw the pain of carrying uh, the weight of trauma and abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. I, I, I witnessed it in real life, so to read it was like it was far more i think scary than go ask Alice right like go ask Alice was scary. that was a scary book. I read that joint, and I was like, what is <laughs> what <laughs> what it, I mean if you want to tell kids, just say no, that is not the way to go.
0: <laughs> I've heard that book is like not really real though <laughs>
1: no it's not it's not which what makes it worse right because you they I was scared. I know you said I can curse, but I really, I, I was scared shitless. I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to lose my life so soon. I just been getting started. Like I was one of those kids that, you know, the world was really shaking, <laughs> shaking the table all the time. And I just wanted to stay still. But when I read Bluest Eye and Push, it, it, it hit me different. It, it was a visceral reaction. It was a visceral reaction. I threw, I actually threw Sapphire's book across the room. Mm. There's a part where Precious, she's realized she's contracted AIDS and she's pregnant. It was too, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was like, let her live. Like I'm reading the book and I'm mad at the fact that she doesn't just get to live. Like she can't be happy. That's not fair. She didn't do it. Like, you know what I mean? I really was having this internal argument. Um, And that's why those books uh, that pivot um, why it was so profound for me? Because I loved living in the Sweet Valley High dreamscape, mm-hmm. but I was from the area, the neighborhoods that you know raised the the precious and 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 you know uh, Pecola, and I was from those places where we had to be kids, even though we were navigating adult traumas mm. um so i i didn't have the words for it i didn't have the articulation for it at a young age i just knew how it felt in my bones i knew how sad i felt um feeling like i was talking to a wall so when i read those books i felt like someone finally opened the door you know someone mm. took the roof off and now we can like get some air and we can talk about this thing that i'm witnessing happen to my friends my family that I know, I know it's happening because we, we, we've had utterances about it. We whispered about it. You know, we tell kids to be safe. We say, don't walk o- down, down that block. Don't talk to that person. Like, you know, there are tips that are shared. And it wasn't until those books that um, I realized, oh, right. We, we have to have a certain kind of understanding just to keep ourselves safe. And this book right here is telling the truth about that understanding.
0: Oh my God. I'm just thinking about trying to put myself in your mind, just growing up with this kind of entire world, right? Where like, you're kind of really invested in this, this kind of safe book world, right? Mm-hmm. And then just, you, was there a kind of like a grief for kind of like saying, oh, like I can't go back to like Beverly Cleary anymore?
1: it still made me like, it brought me joy. Like those books still bring me joy, right? Like, did I lose this, this, you know quote unquote innocence for that kind of literature? Yeah. No, I still loved it, but I had read all of them. Like (laughs) I was was a voracious reader. And so you know how it's it's like to binge a TV show and then you come to the end and you're like, oh no. (laughs) What (laughs) do I do now? I've got questions and there was nothing there yet. I could go on to other readers, you know, other authors, but I felt like I hit the wall. So could I go back? Sure. I, I definitely still held it close to my heart, but I think I had my fill. You know what I mean? Mm. Like there comes a day when you have your feeling, you're just like, all right, enough of that. What else? Right. And, and I needed the, what else mm. I needed the, what else only because I was bearing witness to it in real time. And so many people, you know, so many, I my I might, high school friends, middle school friends, all of our lives, something would come up, some little whisper. And I just didn't have the, you know, the language to be, to be like, what does that mean? Like, why is that coach taking so much interest in this younger girl? Like, what? what? So to not be able to articulate that in real life, but have these books pointed out was mind blowing. And it was only a dream that I would ever have my book in a library next to, you know, this, this canon of, of literature and spiritual awakening.
0: I love what you're saying about not having the language to articulate what you were seeing and feeling. Did you start to say, I have to acquire this language, Mm -hmm. but did that lead to, to, to you starting to write or was it make you dive deeper into the things you were reading?
1: I guess when I think back, I had always been writing. I wrote my first story in fourth grade, and it was terrible. It was absolutely mm-hmm. horrific. But it was a fourth grader, right? And mm-hmm. I just knew when we had to make the book, the inside, we had to make the illustrations. We had to build the book through cardboard. Hello. I love that. I love every part of the process. So I knew I wanted to do it. But then when I read my story, that in fourth grade versus when I read, you know, the blooms, the clearlies, the Pikes, I was like, mm, this is very different. I have to read more. Because I don't know how to do that. I was really invested, unbeknownst to me, to the research. I was invested in falling in love with these characters and these and these communities. I just wanted to find a story that would keep me safe. Um, unfortunately, stories run out of paper, <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, I didn't know that I had time. I didn't know that I was biting time until I created my own stories.
0: And when did you? When did poetry come into the world for you?
1: Oof. So. The thing yeah a p lit junior year, and it, it wasn't it wasn't love at first sight, let me say uh it I thought oh this is gonna be easy because there are no rules right self expression I get to express myself, I say whatever I want, and then my a p lit teacher said, um no, you can't say this. <laughs> basically no, you can't say this, you can't speak like this, you can't use n w a lyrics to recreate Dante's Inferno. And if you don't turn in another paper, you're gonna fail. And so that was it for me in poetry for another five years. I did not get back to poetry until I was 21. Wow. Yeah, I didn't get back Could- to writing my own poetry. I did oratory mm-hmm. in fourth, fifth and sixth grade. So the first poem I ever memorized was James Weldon Johnson's The Creation. We won the competition. It was, it was great, but those weren't mine, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I knew the power of poetry. They just weren't, I just didn't know I could do it. And then when I had the chance to do it, there was someone telling me I was doing it improperly. And so I wasn't interested in touching it again. And at the age of 21, I went to an open mic that my aunt took me to. And every poet that went up on stage sounded like they were talking to me on the front porch. And literally I never let it go. And everything that I do, I did that for two years, um, started focusing more on music journalism, received a summer internship, then moved to New York City for the summer internship that then became a full time job opportunity, moved me and my daughter. I got the summer internship July, August, September. And then I accepted the position within 30 days. And so by September, I knew I was moving to New York and moved there October 16th. Nineteen ninety nine, and haven't looked back since. Now, while I moved there for journalism, poetry was always peeking her head into the room, seeing what I was doing. And you know, I bit. I would sometimes write these essays, and they were very lyrical. And my editors were very unimpressed. (laughs) They were saying, "No one wants to hear cascading, all right? Don't say that when you're talking about (laughs) Benny (laughs) Sisko." And I'm like, "But." It was cast The lights did cascade. <laughs> if you've seen a street light, when someone's battle rapping, you'll understand cascading is the appropriate term. And they're like, no. <laughs> so I had to you know, pick and choose my battles. Uh, and slowly but surely, um, I came back to poetry within two years of that journalism career. And once I did that, and it really was an act of resistance um, or an act of pres- preservation because I was tired of these editors telling me what I could not couldn't write, uh, the poetry then became, you know, my journal, my balm. Lost, lost the job to the dot-com slump. Someone remembered me from doing poetry that aired on HBO, asked me to come do poems at mm, a spot uptown in Harlem called Geishan Cafe, and then a spot in Soho called Joe's Pub, and then next thing you know, um, I I couldn't put the pen down again, and it was that same energetic, kinetic connection that I felt when I first read "Bluest Eye," when I first stepped on stage to share a poem, and and the audience applauded when I first won the oratory competition, when I first created a book by my own hands in fourth grade. All of those had the exact same. Electrical shock mm. that that rode through my body, and this time I just refused to let it go. So I think that's why everything that I do, it feels so much. People are like, "Wait, you're you're at Lincoln Center as poet-in-residence, your artistic director at Urban Word NYC, your executive director for Just Media, your Kennedy Center's next fifty and to date, which no one knows. So I don't know when this will drop, but I will tell you." Um I'm one of the three first inaugural um distinguished writers in residence at Wesleyan. So all of these things, (laughs) the most, it's so much, it's bananas, it's so much. And I'm like, I'm up for the game, right? I'm just like, it's poetry. Poetry's happening. I can do it. Because I'll just show you how poetry lives. Like poetry as as a nucleus is it's it's a forever formula. It can live on page, on stage, as science, as a math formula. It can live as, you know, mediation, meditation. It, it is everywhere. And as long as I'm willing to be a steward of its, you know, outpour, <laughs> spill, and reach, then I'll be fine. But when I think folks are like, well, I only can write this book and I only can go through academia and I have to be printed by this journal, journal to be a serious poet. Yeah, best of luck. I think that's a great journey for someone, not for me. I would love to do my poem alongside, you know, dancers for New York Fashion Week, which I just did. I didn't even know I wanted to do that. I would love my poems to exist in books that go on billboards. Didn't know I could do that. All of these things are possible. There is no one way to create the word.
0: Oh, uh, beautiful. I, I, there's so much I want to ask you unpacking that. One thing I was thinking about as you we were talking just at the end there is we kind of think of poet. We, we can think poetry is a sort of stuffy academic thing. But then when you look back like a couple hundred years to like even like Keats or someone, they were like little they were little rock stars of their day. They were 20 year mm. old romantic people. They were popular artists. Mm -hmm. For the time, you know, I was hit by something you said, which is it felt like they were talking to me on the front porch when you went to Mm -hmm. your first poetry reading. Mm -hmm. And I was contrasting that with that feeling of being in AP Lit, which we've had where they have all the very strict formal rules of this is how it must be done. And I would just be curious to know like, is that electric shock that you talk about, that electric shock of poetry? Is that what you're chasing, that feeling?
1: I have to argue, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I am. Because so, all right, so my hesitation comes from, am I chasing it, right, or am I creating it? Mm. And it depends on the day. You know what I mean? Like there's sometimes when you hit that sweet spot and that poem finishing line, you see it and boom. And then there are times where you finish this thing and you're like, what did I just write? I feel sleepy. I feel tired. No one wants to hear this, but it's, I have a deadline. I have to turn something in. So you work it as much as you can. You have your, 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 your core of writers and editors who you trust to like keep it funky with you. I have great, great friends. I have great friends. I'm so lucky that they're also authors, writers, You know, all brilliant in their own right. And you know, they make themselves available to me. Like we all do when you're in a community. And when I hate the poem the most is when I send it to my friends, you know, when I send it to the comrades and say, what is happening? Is this working for you? Am mm. I being honest? Because we can also like back yourself into a corner as writers, we write ourselves into this niche sometimes where we think, okay, if, if it's not doing this, then I must be doing it wrong because it doesn't feel natural. And for some reason, we're confused that we believe that natural means only when it feels natural, only when it feels good, means it's, it's, you know, good, it's successful, positive. And that's not, more times than not, the scariest things I've written, the things that I do not like, that I think are trash, are the best. <laughs> Those are the best ones because what it did is it required me to be uncomfortable. And in that discomfort is a lot of truth, you know, the truth serum lives in the belly of the thing which is hard to hold. And as a writer who's trying to encompass it all and make a beautiful picture and look at this landscape and can't you fall into it when I don't feel like it's that easy to fall into. When I feel like I am, uh, (laughs) I am uh, the student, of the page, it, it and I'm like, did that work? I'm not sure that it worked. It's when it really is, it's hitting a mark, you know. It's it's not allowing me to have these blind spots, these biases that make it easy to put it in a metaphor. I'm not going to talk about that hard thing. I'll just wrap it up in this metaphor, and whoever reads it will work it out. But then there's a time when there's no one to work it out but you, and you're like, did I do it right? And when I doubt myself the most, I turn to my my folks, and they're the ones who remind me that. This is good. The things that I love, I'm like, whew, love that. What do you think? And they're like, mm, you're stretching it. You know, they're, they're, they're the honest ones. They're like, mm, you said that before, right? Mm, it's not doing what you think, and that's why I think I love it so much because I'm like, oh, tried and true. This is a great one. It's like a good pair. Of, you know, your favorite pair of uh, pajamas or or socks or or that one nice comforter. You like everybody likes this one comforter because you know it's going to just fit perfectly. But that doesn't mean that it's doing the work. Just because it fit didn't mean I did the work. So am I chasing it? Yes. Am I creating it? Yes. It just depends on the day.
0: I love that what you say about the the ones where you're like, I don't know. I have no idea. Like I I have to like let other people in to tell me, like, is this working? Because of all the work you did like hosting poetry slams. Did you build like a, a community of other poets around you?
1: So I, I, I did run the New Eureka Poets Cafe. I ran the New Yo for 13 years and running the New Yo included me being um, the host and curator of the Friday night, but also coaching the national poetry slam team that went to this national conference um, that existed for about 25, um, 28 years. Um, I didn't, I didn't have a chance to be a student in those spaces. I had to be (laughs) the shepherd, right? Mm. So I'm editing other people's poems and I'm giving tips on how to present on stage. And then it's time to go to the nationals and I'm doing all strategy and it never was about my own work. So no, I wasn't able to build around me a community In that space, more so I just learned how to teach effectively, how to coach effectively. And from the new year, which was the adult slam scene, I then went to um, Youth Speaks, which was the youth slam scene. And that was the largest international poetry festival for young people, Brave New Voices. From there, I found a disconnect because the adults They were were kind of tried and true. They already knew what they were doing. They were just coming there to, you know, have a little bit of stage time and possibly get famous. That's what I learned. From that attention-seeking energy, I came to the young people to see, like, where is the disconnect? Because they were so in love with poets. They were just like, I just want to share and and have friends. That's what fueled the young poets. And so I thought, what the hell? What is going on? Because by the time the adults get here, everybody wants to be a rock star. And, and not in the Keats fashion. They literally want to be ASAP Rocky meets Rihanna and you know the baby, that's, that's it. So I then went to the C level, which was the college level, the collegiate poetry slam world. And that's where I found the disconnection happening. You have all these brilliant open young people, artists, writers, dancers, singers, um, Renaissance was happening but it was kind of anticlimactic is the best way to think about it because they had so many variables working in their favor but they had the power and the prowess to to play predator over prey and that meant you know being mean to other teams because you didn't think that they were viable <laughs> ignoring people because you didn't think that they were cute you know the the high school thing but like in a college sense. So Mm -hmm. seeing that disconnect, I said, okay, we're gonna stop this. And that's when I started coaching in that space, but I didn't want to coach just one team. I decided I wanted to coach two and I wanted to coach two at the same time that would work together, which eliminated the idea of slam, right? In that Mm -hmm. sense, there can't be one, if, if I just want one team to work, one team to win, why would I be working with two? which is what the argument was for years. And I simply said, I'm not interested in a winning team. I'm interested in a winning community, right? Mm -hmm. So what does it mean for these two teams to not be on the same side necessarily? Like if we take the championship, what does that mean for you? But more so interested in building a literary community that was responsible for each other, that held each other. I had them editing each other's work, right? At one point, they all had the same t-shirts. They went to the same events. They became friends. They started creating art after the fact. And I found like that moment of creating the union, it removed the competitive spirit where they thought you were me. It enlisted and encouraged us being excited about poetry winning. Mm. And, and that had never been. Of all, the, of all the times that you know I had been coaching, that had never been the case. After 13 years of that though, it takes its toll because you can only say that so many times, right? I'm not teaching at a whole bunch of colleges. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. how do you make sure that that happens? And some folks mimicked and and implemented that into their school neighborhoods and they did it for themselves and that was great. But I realized I was, you know, my term was coming to an end because I still didn't have, who could I turn to? I didn't have that. I had my touring partner, and partner in rhyme, Jive Poetic, who I've toured with since 2001, and then I had folks that I had met through my fellowship at Kavi Khanum, Poets House, Emerging Writers Fellowship. But I didn't have any like you know active like we're going out performing kind. I didn't have that same kind of thing because all of that energy was spent on these three different tiers or sectors of, of poetry slam. Um, so I stopped. I just I gave you know, I bid everyone farewell. (laughs) I put into place people I trusted, um, hoping that they would, you know, keep the party going with with my intention in mind. But also I had to let it go. Like if it didn't happen in that way, that's okay too. Cause I find that that is the hardest way for people to let things go. They're like, I just have to make sure it's going to be okay. No, no, you gotta let it go. You gotta trust (laughs) that you raised the babies to fend for themselves. Right. And once I did that, I let go of all of those slams. And mind you, if, if I'm doing an adult slam, every year I think I hosted about 97 slams a year, five to six poets, three rounds per slam. None of those are my poems. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I had so much art happening around me that I didn't have time to focus on what I wanted to say and do and think and dream. So when I let it go, that's when all of my own projects really started to flourish. Three book deals in two years, since 2017, I guess, yeah? yeah. Three, book, three book deals in two years, and then after that, another five book deals.
0: And uh, a play. <laughs> We've been talking with Mahogany Brown. There's plenty more coming up after the break, but if you're a fan, be sure to read her latest book for young people, Chlorine Sky, published in January of 2022. And don't skip her work for not-so-young people, like her amazing book-length poem, I Remember Death by Its Proximity to What I Love. Head on over to her website, mobrown.com, for all the latest news and links. Okay, let's get back to our guest, Mahogany Brown. I want to get into your books, and I love what you were saying about when you kind of did away with that tearing each other down down, we think there's only one way to get ahead, which is to be competitive, but you found like poetry could actually unite everyone. I'd love to get into your books, especially your, your uh, longer form books in verse. And tell me about like the, the origins for Chlorine Sky and about how it felt to be working on it.
1: So Chlorine Sky was birthed from a poem that I performed often and it's called Blurred Vision. Which is how the book starts this swimming pool scene where the girl is being made fun of by some, you know, creep, whatever. Turns out her best friend likes the creep and laughs along. And it then just becomes this real, you know, internal investigation of fractured friendships and the things we accept in the name of uh, love and acceptance. And um, so it started out as a poem, and I, and I built it into this novel in verse because I felt the truest; it felt the most organic. From there, I then created, I guess, Vinyl Moon to stay in the universe, because Angel is introduced in *Chlorine Sky*, but I didn't want to just stick with novel in verse. I wanted to to stretch myself a little bit, and so it's it's a hybrid novel and verse, prose, text messages. I think we have some snail mail in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. In Vinyl Moon, it seems like you're circling around, you know, you're just like, I'm I'm going to, how many ways can I look at this thing that's happening? And what form can it take? Right? (laughs) Let's go back to Clarence Sky for a sec. Because on the show, we haven't, we haven't talked to a lot of people about writing novels in verse and the structure of it and how you mm-hmm. I'd just love to hear some like nitty gritty like if you came up with like the plot first or if, I know you say it started with like kind of a poetic image.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then yeah. but then it gets down to oh I got like a hundred more of these poetic images
1: mm-hmm. to come mm-hmm. up
0: with right. It's it's a lot of there's a lot of heavy lifting to be done.
1: So the one thing that I knew about the novel in verse is that poems I can do. Novel in verse is still not a poem, right? It's a beginning. <laughs> it's, it's an entrance into, it's an access point, but it's different. And through uh, definitely reaching out to Jason Reynolds, um, who's the one who honestly encouraged me to do it in the first place. He's like, you need to do YA. And I met him as a poet in New York City. So, you know, obviously I value and trust his opinion, but I just didn't think that the YA world could accept my voice or would accept my voice and and maybe some of that had to do with that high school moment right so when writing this this time around I wrote the first draft and it came out to maybe 70 pages and there were so many holes and missing spots there were so many like gaps in times <laughs> <laughs> that I, I was really like scared I was like oh no this is not gonna work this is absolutely not what I want to put out in in the world. Like something is missing. There is a missing texture. There's, you know, there's a crunch that's missing. And that's when I had to to be honest with with myself and say, all right, tear it up friends. Um, Jason gave me, you know, amazing edits. And I went back to the drawing board and just started looking at who's talking. What's my POV, my point of view. And also, um, what am I allowing the reader to to find out for themselves, to gather for themselves without me telling them this is what happens here? And that's what poetry really is an amazing vehicle for. You get to paint the picture, but you don't have to say all of the colors. You get to point at the colors, right? Mm -hmm. You do a lot of showing rather than telling when you're writing poetry. Whereas in verse, there needs to be a little bit of telling <laughs> because mm-hmm. how do we know where the narration is happening? How do we know where the the themes are hitting? Where, where, where are these plots? Who is the protagonist? Why do we care, right? So I had to learn how to balance the two. And the way that I did that best is I wrote the story where I saw, okay, who's talking here? I, I have to describe who they are, where they are. And then I go back into that. And then I start pulling apart things that felt like, uh, this is too linear, or this is too static. I need something that feels more fluid. I need something that feels like a bowing of the the, the shoelace, the tie of the shoelace, rather than, you know, strangling your ankles with those, those shoestrings. Um, also I really, really, uh, fell in love with the form for me, I fell in love with it again because I found that I could have larger conversations. Without asking people to have it, you don't have to have an answer. That, that's not the requirement to be involved in this reading, right? Poetry's job is to be an observer and to show its readers the world. Look at this world. What do you think, reader? Not, look at this world. Let me tell you how Disney's gonna finish it. No. Poetry is not finishing the sentences for you. Poetry is asking you to implement what you understand living in this day and age. Um, So what what do you understand about colorism? What do you understand about gender norms, fractured friendships, sibling rivalry, impact of mass incarceration and criminalization? What do you know about being raised by a single parent? What do you know about losing your best friend? Like I wanted, those things to come up and people to put themselves in the seat, the driver's seat of the protagonist, which is also why I didn't name her until the end. I wanted people to get lost thinking, what is her name? Oh, it might be mine. Cause I did feel this way. You know what I mean? Like you never know if you're looking at someone who's looking at themselves in the mirror, or are you looking at yourself in the mirror?
0: I love that because what the challenge of like a novel in verse or novel made of poems is like, you have this, you're kind of almost indexing this thing, this Mm -hmm. whole uh, 1,000-page book that exists behind the book. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about, like, what do you like to do in poetry to connect with your readers so that they're, you don't have to finish the thought and tell them exactly what to think. How do you open up that door for them, for the poetry to live inside of them, and they can take what you've written and sort of, run with it in their own lives.
1: I found that repetition is, is like really my jam. And I found that through, you know, uh, Poetic Legend, Sister Sonia Sanchez. Repetition, the musicality of the line, the generosity of the images. Um, those, are, those are three keys for me. Repetition, it, it brings you to, the, it pulls you to the next line. So if you find yourself caught, you're like, what does that mean? And then you find that line again. So then you really allow your brain to trip over it a couple of times until you come to your own entry.
0: And I love what you're saying. What do you know about? There's that kind of poetic idea of kind of saying, oh, actually, like, let's not know for a second, right? Mm -hmm. So so Mm -hmm. then we can let in all the things we don't know, and maybe like, search for something based on that not knowing or when you're saying, what do you know about like these things? Cause you're, you're mm-hmm. kind of, you're, you're starting, you're saying let's have a, let's allow these kind of big deeper things that are in our world and our history to start having a conversation with you while you're reading about these characters in poetic mm-hmm.
1: form. Well, I think as adults, we often forget that <laughs> we don't have all the answers. Yeah, and poetry is a great, great resource to remind oneself that we are students in life. So when I ask, what do you know? It's the same way that I would come into a classroom when thinking about, you know, having young people introduce themselves through poetry. I will never ever take it upon myself to assume I know just because what I see in front of me. So the what do you know is the invitation for for the student, the reader, to become a teacher, to become their own archivist, to become their own um, neighborhood steward. That is not just a tool of empowerment, but a tool of, of realization.
0: It's beautiful. Let's talk about vinyl, vinyl moon a little bit. There's a lot of it in the classroom and a lot of it is angel kind of falling into all these this amazing literature just tell me a little bit about how you thought about Vinyl Moon and and also like not just going straight verse or poetry but Mm -hmm. all the different forms that you're you're bringing to it
1: well because the novel in verse it felt like while it was still something I had to learn um, this new form really was like a gut punch (laughs) I had to I had to be okay with, you know, wh- where's your grammar falling? You know, like you have to mind the rules, right, so to speak, of, of prose. Prose is different than poetry. Poetry, I can do anything I want. I can write a poem in the footnote. I can write the poem as, you know, an, 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 an ampersand. Like anything can happen with poetry. Whereas prose, there are more rules. So I wanted to and jam both of those loves, what I know about stories, what I love about them, meeting that love with this like tension of, ah, oh, that damn long line, is that a comma? Is it a semicolon? Do I mean that? Okay. And when I had moments of just like, this feels static and dry, that's when the poems will come in mm. because the poems felt like that, you know, again, as authentic as I can possibly be, as honest as I, I can possibly I can possibly be, poetry is where my heartbeat lies. So while I'm trying this new thing on, I still wanted to bring the rigor of the, of the poetic form into the space. And so I just allowed myself to dance around um, and the poetry, the text messages, all those things that I think there's a wrap in there at one point. It just allowed me to, you know, to keep the reader and myself on our toes.
0: Yeah. That's another thing. The immediacy of your books, right? we we're, we're- competing with a million distractions and hostile, unsafe world, right? And -hmm. you're saying, okay, like, is that another thing you're thinking about? Like, how do I, how do I get these kids' attention now, 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 and meet the urgency of, of, of their moment?
1: I'm not sure because I I never, I never actually thought about the book as a distraction. Hmm. Yeah. For me, because uh-huh. I have so much love for books, it's not a distraction. But because I have such varied readers throughout my my time as a professor or facilitator, I'm aware of, of a time limit, right? Like, mm-mm, you can't read 20 minutes at somebody with these long, thick lines. There's no page break. That scares people. That scares people who love to read, if we're honest, right? So, like, how do you invite them in? How do you give them a moment to, to access this? text at their own will. And that's, I, I think I responded to just how to keep readers invested, regardless of, of the fact that we're living through a panini. Like we are absolutely living through a pandemic. It is happening. My, my next book is about teenagers surviving a pandemic, but it's short stories. <laughs> They're all interdispersed, um, And at one point, even COVID has a voice. Like I said, someone who caught COVID, I, I feel like I'm close enough to it. <laughs> <laughs> caught, and, I, and I caught it before they had a vaccine. So the fear of that, you know what I mean, was like mm-hmm. otherworldly, otherworldly. But I took notes as soon as the fog lifted. And that's how this next book even came to be. So thinking about the fact that there are, I just believe our young people are always living through a pandemic. You know, the adults were horrible. And I have to say we, because we are, we, we are in positions of power, and yet we have policies that negate everything that we're teaching them about love and liberty and life and choice and their bodies. like we are allowing the worst atrocities to occur in, in, in regards to our human rights. And in regards to history repeating itself, we are doing, we're failing. We are failing. So Uh, Am I writing, thinking about that? Absolutely. But is that a new, (laughs) is that a new fear? No, like, no. Once we, I I just, I can't even understand how the young people I get to talk to now are so aware. I did not know anything about, you know, the opioid crisis. I didn't know about the effects of Vietnam. I didn't know those things. I just knew, okay, this uncle, when he got back, something was different. Okay, this person. We didn't have real discussion. We didn't have access like, like these young people do. And now I feel just like I'm so slow to the game that I'm still naive enough to think, oh, well, they wouldn't lie. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> My sons are like, miss, stop it. <laughs> they wouldn't, and you know what I mean? Like they're just mm-hmm. so, they're just otherworldly beyond their years. And the, the things that I'm writing now are responding to um, not just varied readers, but like critical thinkers. Like they're astute citizens and critical thinkers. And they may not speak the same language that we were taught as correct English or, you know, job ready, job preparedness, but they know what they're talking about because they're surviving it every day.
0: Yeah, that awareness, right? Like the kids seem, I don't know, it seems like some of the the kind of blinders that the adult world tells them, like the blinds coming off where they're saying, oh yeah, actually all the stuff they told us isn't actually true. What do the kids need right now to feel okay or to, mm. to, to connect?
1: I think adults need to get out the way. That's one. The young people can speak for themselves. They got it together. Do they know all of the ripples and the effects? Maybe not, but do they have a great grasp? Absolutely we need to stop thinking that they are these children who need even their ideas monitored that's one another thing is the truth we are we are filtering information under the guise of protection when in reality we <laughs> we disable them right we we take away their ability to make sound decisions for themselves because they are bubble wrapped with these ideas that aren't even effective, let alone (laughs) truth. It is not the truth. That is not the truth. Banning books doesn't work, okay? You wanna ban somebody? Get somebody knocked off of Twitter if they got the racist threats going, right? You wanna ban somebody? Who has access to making 3D guns online and buying them? Do a work to keep our, our kids safe in their physical spaces, rather than trying to tell them, "You can't read this. You can't say that. Like that's not enough. How, what does restorative justice look like? What does transformative justice look like? I would love to see those those kind of things talk into the space rather than just us closing a blind eye and trying to hide the books that we think will uh, I don't know, activate them to be critical thinkers when thinking about critical race theory or whatever.
0: Yeah. One thing, one argument I've heard about the the book banning, which is repulsive and disgusting is that perhaps it's an awareness by the people banning the books that a lot of this stuff is actually working. It's, it's, it's from yeah. a position of weakness, right?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously I, I, yeah. I didn't think it was anything else. Um, <laughs> Two of my books have been added to the ban list. Uh, Woke, A Young Poets call to Justice, which is an anthology of poems for ages, what, 5 to 12? Yeah. And the other is Woke Baby, a board book for kids. Because they literally said it raises liberal children. What? That's the argument? I was like, are you kidding? You can't be... And then it showed up on Fox News and I said, okay, they're not mm. kidding. This is a thing. So you only can receive so many death threats before you get really tired of, I'm just writing books for kids to be, you know, a better global citizen. We're not are the only get- ones on this planet.
0: Have you been tired? Like, are there, you're getting, you're hearing it? Oh, yeah. You're feeling it? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's nasty. It's nasty. But also, like, it just reminds me, right, that we're on the right path. If, if you do that much work to keep a book out of kindergartens and libraries, to keep the Project 19 out of libraries and, and study groups, to keep All American Boys by Jason Reynolds and Brendan Kelly, Dear Martin by Nick Stone. Like if y'all are going out of your way to keep these books out of our young people's hands, I would just, you know, encourage you. Dear listener, maybe you make sure that those circumstances don't happen so that those books have to exist because the books are the blueprint to saving yourself. The books are the blueprint to having a healthy dialogue after some traumatic shit has happened. You're trying to take care of the result of the symptom. You're not even taking care of the problem. The problem is our our, our actual humanity is responding to violence that has been normalized since video games, since you put these things on tape. It's not like it's new. We knew lynchings were happening. This is why the Emmett Till Foundation exists. We knew lynchings were happening. This is why the the Justice uh, Center for Global Peace in, in Montgomery, Alabama exists. Like, if you don't want us to talk about it, make sure it doesn't happen. That's it. It's the same thing people uh, adults say when someone maybe sneaks out of the house. They're like, "If you don't want to get grounded, it's same thing. You don't want us to ground uh, these politicians. Do your part. Do what you said you would do for your constituents."
0: Beautiful. Thank you for that. But this isn't anything new. Like this has been going. If you spoke up as a African American or Black person for since. Sixteen, nineteen. Someone would hit you over the head. That's been mm-hmm. that's that's been the the model. Yes. But uh, but the maybe the awareness of it. I don't know. It, I, I'm just so disgusted by all the, by the new book book banning. And I'm so sorry you're having to deal with. Too. I'm so sorry you're having to deal with that. And I hope it's you're okay. Um, i
1: Appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. No. I, I've it's, seen. Yeah. I've I mean, no, I don't life. think
1: anybody's prepared for. It. It, right. right i thought i was <laughs> i thought oh I'm writing kids books is yeah. gonna be new and next thing i know you know i'm getting these really evil messages and my face uh blotted out in my eyes and i'm adding this red flag list and it's just it's a constant it's a constant but what i do know about bullies is that they they always swing and hide their fists so the best way for me to respond to the bullies is to give them what they want. You don't want these books to exist. <laughs> and you think that you can uh, scare me into silence. I mean, you got the right one because I have nothing but time and I have another book to write. And it's and it's gonna be even more so uh, something for you to ban because if anything, um, I want my legacy to be uh, how I equalize the playing field for all of our children. I want all of our stories to be here. I need all of our stories, various, unheard of, wow, afro You know, I want all of them to be here. I only can do my part, but I will do it. And I'll be damned.
0: I want to leave her, oh my God, let's. <laughs>
1: Did you put your hands up? That was amazing. I got an
0: I got got a electric shock at the end there. Let's can we end it right there? That that is
1: <laughs> done. Thank yep. you, Theo. Right.
0: <laughs> Well, you know what the music means. On behalf of all of us at SCBWI, I'd like to thank Mahogany for talking with us today. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to our totally free show. New episodes just like this one every week. And if you're interested in learning more about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, please head over to scbwi.org. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. This podcast was produced by Avery Silverberg and edited by Samantha Thomas. Thanks so much for listening. Feel free to reach out with your thoughts and suggestions, and be sure to check in next week.